Hello there, my name is Charlie. Hello there, my name is Charlie. And today we're going to talk a little bit about vaccines and medicines that are commonly used on short-term trips, uh, whether those be medical mission related, uh, vacation related, it really doesn't matter. These are all different things that you may need to consider depending on where you're going and what you're going for. A little bit about me, um, my background is as a pharmacist. Uh, my current job for the last uh, 10, 11 years now has been at the University of Finley College of Pharmacy. In that role, I have really taken on a lot of uh, responsibility for teaching the, the tropical disease state portions of our classes, for working with those students who are planning trips to go overseas, and as well just maintaining contact with students after they've graduated and, and listening to them, helping them figure out things for the trips that they are going on or for maybe some of their patients. Uh, I've also in the in the past had a lot of opportunity to go on short-term medical mission trips. I've never been anywhere longer than a month overseas, and that was to Kenya. Uh, so many of you have a lot more experience than what I do for at least longer periods of time. Uh, but I've been rather fortunate and been able to go on many short trips uh, to quite a large portion of the world. And and so a lot of what we'll be discussing today is is somewhat drawn on that and from that and and looking at what I think many of our short-term trips need. So just some disclosure information from a CE perspective. I have no financial relationships to disclose. We will talk a little bit about some off-label things. Those are off-label things from an FDA perspective, but not necessarily things that we would find to be uncommon or used infrequently, in fact, in a lot of the world. And so some of those are listed there, some off-label malaria prophylaxis, off-label traveler's diarrhea prophylaxis, and then some off-label use of antihistamines. Learning objectives are listed here, and basically we're just looking at trying to engage you all and trying to uh, help you be a little bit better informed, hopefully, by the end of this, than what you are now about some of the common things that we see from a short-term mission trip. If you're going for longer periods of time, three months, six months, year, two years, then this is going to be a little bit different discussion for that individual. So again, this is really geared to, towards that student, towards that healthcare provider, uh, whomever is looking to go somewhere for a week, two weeks, uh, and help out in some places around the world. Pre-trip thoughts. To help orient you, to help you think about what you might need to consider from a vaccine or medication perspective, you really, one, have to know where you're going. If you're going to Cancun on a honeymoon for yourself, that's a very different perspective than if you're going more inland within the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. Uh, so what you're going to be doing, where you're going to be doing it with the destination is obviously very, very much important as well. Vaccination requirements, you know, things like yellow fever. Some countries have very strict yellow fever policies, and you really need to show proof that you've had a yellow fever vaccine. Prophylactic medications, uh, definitely something as well. Altitude. Altitude comes into play not just from a perspective of what we're thinking about or having difficulty breathing, but altitude comes into play as well for things like mosquitoes. You know, above a certain elevation, we no longer have to worry about malaria anymore simply because of the vector, the mosquito doesn't live at that height. Motion sickness. Many of you uh, probably ex have experienced motion sickness, especially when you were younger, um, and, and probably not something you've thought about recently. I will tell you from firsthand experience, it's not something I thought about recently uh, either, but then you go on some of these trips and the roads that you're on are very much unlike anything we're used to. And not just that, but for me personally, it was not just it wasn't just the roads; it was the fumes, the 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 gas smells, the diesel smells, the you know leaded gas that that's still being used in some of the parts of the world. Um, all that with the the curvy roads, and I'm starting to think, uh oh. And so motion sickness is definitely something. Even if you haven't dealt with it personally in a long period of time, don't just overlook it. And then as well, uh, what medications should you take with you? And again, depending on that trip, where you're going, what you're doing, that list is going to look a little
Um, so looking at some of the commonly seen uh, illnesses, diseases that patients may come across while they are outside the United States. Traveler's diarrhea, this is by far the biggest concern that, that you will have. It doesn't usually get the most press. It's certainly not the most interesting and probably not something you're going to want to tell everybody about when you get back home. Uh, but that's easily the one that if you're going on a short-term trip, you're much more likely to experience um, compared to any of the rest of these. Uh, malaria, yeah, 3%, but note that is without chemoprophylaxis. So that means you went to a malaria endemic region of the world and you did not take any medications to try to prevent it. Uh, PBD, so you had some sort of exposure to TB um, where now you might develop a positive test. Malaria with prophylaxis. So here is where you're actually taking medications because you're a good patient, a good traveler, um, but you still have a risk. That risk is, is you know, more than tenfold smaller than if you didn't have prophylaxis, but it's still not negligible or not something that's entirely out of the realm of possibility. Hepatitis A, typhoid, those are things that uh, are, are less likely to happen. Hepatitis B, HIV, fatal accidents, and you're looking at less than 0.01%, and then cholera, legionella, poliomyelitis, well, less than 0.001%. Now, again, depending where you're going, something especially like cholera, you might have a higher risk than if you're going to another area of the world. So definitely keep all these things in mind um, as you're going. The other thing I want to point out, especially from the cholera perspective, um, some of that is, is data from, or this is all data from 2008, so it is definitely dated, but it gives you still, I think, a very good idea about what to expect. But again, cholera is, is one that it might be a little bit different. Vaccines. If you get nothing else from this slide, the very last thing I have down here, cdc.gov slash travel. That will help you not just with vaccines, but with a lot of different uh, things that you need to keep in mind for your travel, for your trip. Um, so going back to the top of the slide now, all patients considering your next travel should be up to date on routine vaccinations. And by those, all that means is the things we would normally get here in the United States. Tetanus, Hep A, Hep B, Influenza, MMR, pneumococcal. Um, if you fall into those groups, you should be getting those. And so looking at that, this slide is all about making sure you're staying up to date on those vaccines that you should get, even if you don't leave the United States. If you never leave your house, still recommended to get these. Now, once we get uh, into some of the other country-specific or location-specific vaccines, uh, we, we quickly run into things that we don't see in the United States a whole lot, i.e. yellow fever or typhoid. Uh, so definitely those are um, things that, that we used to see here in parts of the United States. You go back in time a couple hundred years, and, and sure, we had yellow fever. We had typhoid fever here. Uh, but now in the United States, we no longer worry about them. But if you travel, you need to start being more concerned about them. Uh, for some countries, you have to show your quote-unquote yellow card. You have to show documentation that you have had a yellow fever vaccine. Yellow fever vaccine is not the easiest vaccine in the world to find a location to to get to give you that vaccine here in the United States. Uh, it can be somewhat tricky. It's not like many of the rest of these vaccines. You can just go to your local pharmacy and get uh, yellow fever is definitely a little bit more tricky. And sometimes you have to travel to a larger city if you live in a rural area to be able to find a health department or another location who will be able to give you that yellow fever vaccine. Typhoid fever uh, is, is something as well. Depending where you're going, you might need to do it. Fortunately, typhoid fever, there's a couple of vaccines that are pretty easy to do, especially the oral one. Uh, oral typhoid fever is you take um, every other day for four doses. So that's pretty easy, and you can use it in anyone who's up to six years old. The other nice thing about the oral version is you only have to repeat it every five years is the current recommendation. Um, that one, some patients do complain that it makes them feel just a little bit more tired. Some people will report getting a little bit of a cold or feeling a little bit sniffly, some little stuffy uh, sort of thing. That does seem to be something that you might see with the oral vaccine. Uh, this one does need to be refrigerated. So the oral capsule is something that you would need to keep in the, the refrigerator for that until you're able to take all four of those doses. There's also an injectable and IM route. 
nice thing about it is it's just a one-time dose. So some people like doing that versus having to swallow a capsule uh, every other day for four doses. Uh, the other nice thing about the, the IM is you can give it to kids down to the age of two years old in the United States. Uh, looking at traveler's diarrhea, so switching a, a little bit here, or not a little bit, definitely a lot. Uh, traveler's diarrhea, you can do a lot by just thinking about what you eat. Uh, if you're careful about what you eat while you're traveling, you can definitely cut your risk of traveler's diarrhea quite a bit. So there's some things that are listed here. Uh, if it's not from a sealed bottle, don't drink it. If you cannot physically open that cap, don't drink it. And even then, some people would definitely recommend uh, that you wipe that lid, you wipe that, that top of that bottle um, off as well with some sort of, of disinfectant or alcohol-based wipe um, to help prevent anything that might be on the lid itself from falling down in or getting your lips on it if you're drinking straight from the bottle. Uh, no ice is another big recommendation. Uh, unless you know for sure that that ice is quote-unquote safe for tourists, uh, be very, very careful using ice. Again, even if you're drinking a, a Coca-Cola or another beverage along those lines, uh, that beverage is probably safe to drink, but as soon as you put ice in it that may or may not be from a questionable source, you have now exposed yourself potentially to some sort of bug that might not make it for a pleasant next couple of days. Another big thing, don't eat from straight vendors. No matter how good that fresh, grilled, roasted, quote-unquote, chicken looks or smells, don't do it. Um, so, so just be careful eating from street vendors. I don't have anything against street vendors other than wanting to protect you and your bowel habits from becoming excessive. Fruits and veggies, the old standby. Only eat it if you can peel it, or if it's been cooked. And if it's been cooked in a, in a you know, an environment that has been deemed safe or you feel is safe, only eat at tourist restaurants. Those restaurants that uh, there are other tourists at. Uh, other individuals that you think, all right, you probably don't haven't built up travelers or haven't built up immunity, quote unquote, to this traveler's diarrhea. So, uh, you know, try to eat at places where they are probably catering a little bit more carefully to our very sensitive tummies uh, that we have here in the United States. A little bit more about the specifics of traveler's diarrhea. Uh, most of it, boom, 80, 90% of it is caused by bacteria. That doesn't rule out viruses, that doesn't rule out protozoa, but most of what we see is definitely caused by bacteria. E. coli being the most common bacteria that can cause traveler's diarrhea. Uh, but definitely there's other ones, Shigella, Salmonella, that can show up as well. Viral, norovirus, rotavirus, astrovirus, I usually think of these being more so in, in cruise ship sorts of patients, uh, but as well, if you're going you know, anywhere, you can, you can potentially come across, across a viral cause of diarrhea. Protozoa, Giardia, you're up in the mountains in the Andes or somewhere, and there's this nice crystal clear cold water flowing in a nice picturesque stream beside you. Try not to drink from that stream. Even though it might feel cold and refreshing, it might plague you for the next little while. Uh, so Giardia is definitely the biggest protozoa that we see that runs in this uh, traveler's diarrhea sort of, of circle. But again, if you're careful about what you eat, what you drink, um, protozoa is probably not the easiest thing to catch compared to bacteria. But again, if you're drinking from questionable sources, you can certainly run into Giardia. High-risk areas, I mean, you look at this, we got Asia, we have Africa, we have Central, South America, Middle East, Mexico. Basically, if you go outside of North America and Europe, you run the risk of running into traveler's diarrhea. So how does it present? What does the patient complain of? What are we trying to prevent you, the short-term traveler, from experiencing um, is, is pretty well listed here. Bacterial is very, very sudden onset. You might wake up and you feel fine, but then by noon, just a few hours later, you're like, uh-oh, 
um, and you're looking for that restroom in a very urgent manner, um, some people will get tired associated with that. Uh, they may experience some cramping or abdominal pain. Loose stools are a given. Um, some patients might have some vomiting. Some patients might just feel like they're going to vomit. For most people who are otherwise healthy, uh, this is fairly rate limiting, uh, three to five days. But if your trip is only a week and you come down with this on day one, you're just made for a very unpleasant trip. You come down with it on day seven when you're flying back to the United States, back home, you've just made for some very uncomfortable plane rides. Uh, so again, be very, very careful. Try to prevent that any possible sources of running into this thing. Viral. As far as symptoms, overall very similar to bacteria. Some patients um, seem to be a little bit more likely to have vomiting associated with that. So that's that situation where it's coming out both ends at the same time. Uh, and which, again, is never pleasant to do in the, the friendly confines of your home, own home, but certainly even less pleasant uh, in the situation you probably find yourself in outside the United States. Um, viral untreated, which we don't have a whole lot of treatments for the viral causes anyways, is a little bit shorter duration than what we see of bacterial diarrhea. So that's, I guess, at least a positive from it. Protozoa. This is the gift that keeps on giving, that lets you remember that trip you had uh, with quite good clarity. This one usually would not show up until you get back home if you're only going to be gone for a week or even two weeks. So this has a very delayed onset as those protozoa are, are um, replicating within your GI tract. It's a slower process than bacteria or viral uh, replication. So it takes a little bit more time for those to get to that, that step or that point where all of a sudden you're now having significant symptoms. Um, one thing that is a little bit different with this one is you're a little bit more likely to have fatty stools as well. So definitely the one to two weeks and the more gradual onset of symptoms. It's one of those where you wake up in the morning and you feel a little bit of miss. And as the day goes on, maybe you feel a little bit more off. And then two to three days later is when you're really starting to, to feel it. So it's it's not as, as a quick acting or urgent sort of uh, bacteria. If we don't treat diarrhea that is caused by protozoa, um, it is still self-limiting in most individuals, but you're now talking weeks to potentially months. And so most of the time you're going to want to get treated for a protozoal sort of thing. So if you have this diarrhea that starts a couple weeks after you get back from your trip and it's progressing and it's not going away, uh, definitely seek out uh, some healthcare provider advice for that Um So when it comes to traveler's diarrhea, you know, for bacteria or for viral, for most patients, rehydration is the key. Uh, rehydration plus probably some um, salts, oral rehydration salts, is going to be very important in these individuals. And that can be something as simple as Gatorade. Most people would recommend diluting Gatorade or another sports-like drink a little bit with, with safe bottled water in a one-to-one -one sort of ratio. Um, just because sometimes that, that sweet taste of the Gatorade or other uh, sports beverage like that can make diarrhea or make that, that nausea feel a little bit worse. So a lot of times we'll recommend diluting it down. That, that also, you know, you're still going to get the same amount of electrolytes, but it's also allowing for more hydration from that as well. Anti-motility agents. Um, this is one where you have to be a little bit careful of and not just give them to everybody or not just recommend everybody take an anti-motility agent. In a patient who has a fever of 101 or higher or bloody diarrhea, um, that's, 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 those are signs that this is a more severe than just your normal run-of-the-mill traveler's diarrhea. And in that situation, stopping the GI tract, while the symptoms at that point in time um, are going to decrease, the amount of times you're going to have to run to the bathroom are going to decrease, you've now just created this very nice incubator within your GI tract that is going to allow that bacteria just to continue to replicate. And your body's defenses, trying to flush it out, have now been limited, have now been stopped um, by using an anti-motility agent. So be very, very careful doing that um, if you have a fever or if you have any noticeable blood in the stool. Um, bacteria, 
what do we do? So, you know, a lot of times we've got antibiotics. We're probably not going to have the ability to really test for susceptibility or resistance to any of these antibiotics. By the time that report, if it's even available where you're at, by the time that report would come back, you're probably done. You're probably over and good. Um, many people will recommend ciprofloxacin or another fluoroquinolone as being a good starting point. Azithromycin is also a good option and usually fairly readily available in many of these countries. Rifaximin is, is definitely works as well, but it's it's a lot less available to find. It might be one where if you happen to take some with you, you now have it available, but it's, it's from what I've been able to ascertain, it's not something you can just easily find in a corner drugstore in the middle of Honduras or wherever you happen to be at. Ciprofloxacin and azithromycin are much easier to find from an overseas perspective. Um, protozoa, what do we do for Giardia? Uh, we have options available. Uh, metronidazole is still considered first line for most individuals. Tinidazole is going to um, probably overtake metronidazole in the not too distant future due to resistance. Uh, so tinidazole right now, or nidazoxanide, is more reserved for that patient who is not getting any relief from metronidazole after a few days, which might mean that that uh, particular protozoa has developed resistance to metronidazole. Again, from what I've been able to ascertain from asking some friends who have had uh, more overseas experience here recently than myself, finding tinidazole or nidazoxanide is a lot more difficult than finding metronidazole in most of the world. Um, tinidazole, nidazoxanide, you know, even from full disclosure story perspective, your local neighborhood pharmacy here in the United States may have to order that drug in. They may not have it on the on the shelf. Prophylaxis. This is an option, but not something that's rec routinely recommended unless you have some known history with immunocompromising, unless you have a known immunocompromising um, situation. Uh, so maybe you're on medications for rheumatoid arthritis or Crohn's disease, which are uh, limiting your body's effectiveness to combat, combat any sort of infection. Uh, traveler's diarrhea prophylaxis, again, is not routinely recommended. However, there are some options. Uh, bismuth subsalicylate is one of those options. This is just your regular old Pepto-Bismol. And it's been found, there have been now a couple studies. These have certainly not been large, well-documented studies, but they've done a couple studies with uh, some college students eager to earn some extra money on spring break. And so what they've done with these college students is they basically divide them into two groups. Some patients are getting Pepto and some of the students are just going to Kinkin or wherever and not um, getting Pepto-Bismol. Uh, those who were taking uh, Bismuth subsalicylate, whether the, the tablet or the oral suspension, they were less likely to develop traveler's diarrhea. We've known for some time that Bismuth subsalicylate does have some very minor uh, ability to, uh, to as an anti-infective, so there is some anti-infective properties to that product. And so those are an option. The nice thing about it is it's not as easily absorbed, so it's not something you see a whole lot of systemic side effects potentially uh, like you can with some of the antibiotics. So that's an option. Antibiotics um, such as Cipro, Doxy, um, Trimethoprim, Sothomethoxazole, or again Rifaximin are certainly options as are others. However, we are seeing increased resistance, not just in the United States, but we're seeing a lot of resistance around the world to, to some of these antibiotics. So thereby, you know, using these meds prophylactically may or may not really help you, uh, depending on the resistance patterns of the E. coli in the area in which you're traveling. Um, so again, just go back to that earlier statement that if you treat what might be traveler's diarrhea as soon as you can, you're very much going to be in a self-limiting state as well. Um, that first time you get that urge, like, uh-oh, where's the bathroom? That's the time to take that ciprofloxacin. That's the time to take that azithromycin if you have it with you. If you do that, your traveler's diarrhea is oftentimes going to be very, very short. Um, so you're looking at 24 hours or less. So um, I think most of us would agree that is much more preferable than the two to five day sort of thing we usually might see. With runs its course.
All right, malaria. This is obviously a big one as well. I'm not going to go a whole lot into the, the background of malaria. Um, again, know that incidence varies greatly depending on country, and not just country, but even within that country. Uh, you know, if you're going to Ethiopia and you're going to Addis Ababa, and that's the only place you're really going to be, there's not any reason to take uh, malaria prophylaxis medication for that city. Um, they've just been able to eliminate that part of it is you don't see mosquitoes. Addis Ababa is a very high uh, and elevation city. And so that is helping as well as just being in a, a very large city. They have done a good job about helping eliminate uh, mosquitoes and especially malaria containing mosquitoes within that city. But if you're traveling outside of Addis, even just for a short day trip, just as kind of a tourist to kind of explore the, the countryside a little bit, and then you're probably going into areas where you need to start worrying much more about malaria prophylaxis. So again, very, very important, going back to the, one of those earlier slides, know about your trip, know what the plans are. Just because where you're going to be for six of the seven days that you're gone, there's not malaria. It doesn't mean for that seventh day when you're going up to a very distant uh, village to provide medical care, or maybe you're going to the beach as a, a day off sort of thing. You need to take all that into consideration when you are planning your trip and thinking about what medications you may. Uh, there's several different options for malaria prophylaxis. We're really going to touch on the big players today, just due to time, and, and you know, there's there's a whole bunch of different options. Um, all of the meds that we're going to take about, you have to start taking them before you go. In some cases, that's only one to two days. In other cases, that's one to two weeks before you go. So it does, again, require a little bit of planning up front. And then you have to continue taking them while you're on your trip. You know, if it's a weekly drug and you're only gone one week, you just have to take it one dose while you're gone. And then they all have a period of time after you get back home. This is the key part. A period of time after you get back home, you need to keep taking them. That is... Um, as short as a week and up to about uh, four weeks for some of these meds. Why is that important? Well, when you get bit by a mosquito, that mosquito is injecting these plasmodium, is injecting these malaria um, parasites into your bloodstream. But it, all of those parasites are not of the same age. You're getting very, very um, infant as well as adolescent, as well as teenager, as well as, you know, middle age and geriatric and patients in nursing homes, essentially. You're getting all those life cycles or all those stages of life injected into you. These drugs, they only really kill the parasite at specific areas within that life cycle. So, for example, if the uh, medication that you're taking only kills at, say, day, you know, 14 of the life cycle, and you have a, a you got infected with a whole bunch of baby plasmodium, you need to keep taking that for a period of time before they will come into contact with the medication at that this stage of their life where it is going to actually be effective and, and kill them off. So that is hugely important that you continue taking them after you after you get home. And that is also important in many cases of patients who were did not take their malaria prophylaxis med correctly and and then later developed malaria were due because they, they say, well, well, I didn't get bit by a mosquito. Well, maybe you did and you just didn't realize it. Uh, so even if you feel that you did not get bit by a mosquito the whole time you were gone, you should still continue taking that medication for the full duration um, as indicated on your prescription. Some areas of the world, as with antibiotics, we see resistance. And again, some areas of some countries may not have malaria present. So like we talked about, and I believe I used you may or may not need to use that. If you go to, again, the CDC's website, it can give you a whole lot of very good information about where you're going and what medication you're going to need to take. Um, so here's just a kind of a screenshot of, of a little bit of the table um, from this. And so here, you know, you see here a lot of these countries, Antarctica uh, being one of them, a great one to travel to if you don't need, uh, if you don't want to take malaria prophylaxis, no mosquitoes. Um, but Angola, for example, estimated relative risk of malaria for U.S. travelers, moderate. Drug resistance, chloroquine. Don't take chloroquine if you're going to Angola. It's light, unlikely to work. Uh, malaria pro species that are most commonly seen, we see the falciparum or falciparum, whatever you prefer. 
um, being the most common, and then Ovali and Vivax, which is not necessarily real uncommon. And then here's a nice little list of medications that you can take for prophylaxis. So, uh, you know, so it, it's going to help you give options. And again, that is just fun. You can just go to CDC's website. You can type in this whole um, long thing if you want, or just go to cdc.gov and just search for the country that you're traveling to. And it will pop up not just this information, such as what meds you need to take for malaria, but it will also give you a lot of strong recommendations. Other things. All right, so the first one we'll talk about is atovaquone proguanol. I always um, think of this one, the, the brand name is Malarone, in case you wonder. Um, this is a great one for those of you who may find yourselves on any given day being told by your boss, hey, I need you to travel to such and such place. And you're like, oh, bummer, uh, there is malaria in that country, and now what do I do? This one's nice, unlike most, in that you only need to start taking it one to two days before travel. And then the other nice thing about this one, while it is a daily med, um, so you need to keep taking it every day you're gone, so QD once a day, um, you do need to continue taking it for only seven days after you get back home, uh, compared to some of the meds we'll talk about in the next few slides that you have to take for four weeks after you get back. Again, that can be a definite benefit. Why is that? Well, this one is actually a combination medication. So we actually have two active ingredients. So it's kind of hitting a, at, a, at least two different sites uh, within the life cycle of that parasite. So that's why this one we don't have to take as long uh, for those patients. The, the negative uh, that is commonly mentioned with this medication is it tends to be a little bit more expensive than, than most of our malaria uh, prophylactic medications. But again, if this is a business-related trip, probably you can get that paid for by your uh, by if, if your insurance doesn't cover it otherwise. Um, contraindications, there's to be careful with it in kidney function or kidney dysfunction. And then common adverse effects, uh, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, headache. I mean, those are common adverse reactions with just about any medication. And so not necessarily a whole lot to really be worried about. One other thing about this one is it is best absorbed with food or some sorts of the fat or protein in the diet. Uh, so definitely recommend to give this one with food, uh, some sort for those patients. Chloroquine, this is the one that for Angola was mentioned that we have resistance and that is just is not only in in angola um, that is in a lot of the world so widely resistant can use only for travel to caribbean central america in a few areas in asia so largely if you're going to mexico belize honduras places like that is where you might see uh, chloroquine used outside of that probably not a good choice of medications Nice thing about it, uh, though, as well, is it's been used for a long period of time. It's relatively safe, even though it's got some potential nasty things. Uh, these side effects are usually only seen not when a patient is taking it once a week for malaria prophylaxis, um, but when a patient is actually using it um, all day, every day for things like rheumatoid arthritis. That's when you really see these things come out. Um, and in 2020, this is a good reason to not use chloroquine for rheumatoid arthritis. We haven't really used chloroquine for any autoimmune disease for a long period of time anyways, because there are much safer drugs. Um, may take with food to help avoid GI upset. If you are going to be gone somewhere for six months to a year, and your discussions have led you to take malaria prophylaxis for that whole time, that's when you have to start watching for some of these long-term side effects, such as the retinal visual changes um, and some of the potential anemias that can be seen with chloroquine. Short-term use, you know, if you're taking this medication for, you know, six weeks, eight weeks or less, you really don't have to worry about any of these sort of toxic. A good old doxycycline. Um, so very commonly used antibiotic. And here in the United States, this is a great medication as well for those who might find out very short term that they're going to be traveling. Um, bad thing compared to the previous drug we talked about that you can start very early on is you need to take this one for about four weeks after you get back. Uh, doxycycline also is a great drug because if you are a patient who forgot to take your malaria medication with you, 
And Doxy is pretty easy to find in most of the world. So you can just walk down to the neighborhood drugstore and, and leave with some doxycycline in your bag. Um, bad thing about it, careful with peds. Um, don't use it in pediatric patients, pregnancy, breastfeeding. Uh, this medication is not recommended for those patient populations at all. Um, so contraindications, again, pregnancy, pediatric patients, common adverse reactions, uh, GI upsets. Even here, uh, if, you, if you have a, a patient or son-daughter who's taking uh, doxycycline for acne, a GI upset is a pretty common complaint with this medication. One of the bad things that you have to watch with this drug, and, and one of the reasons it's probably not used more, is photosensitivity. So if you're going to an area of the world where there is malaria, usually the, the sun is going to be much more intense because uh, we're probably going to a tropical environment closer to the equator. And so that is a definite drawback to doxycycline. It's not, you know, the end of the world because we have sunscreen. So definitely recommend sunscreen use. Mefloquine, very, very similar drug to chloroquine. We do see some increasing resistance, but overall not nearly as much resistance as what we see with chloroquine. There's a lot of the same uh, sorts of, of recommendations. One thing that is definitely different than chloroquine is some of the contraindications. If you have a patient or you are a patient who has had a history of seizure or a psychiatric disease, then the, this is probably medication that is not the best one for you. All right, so like I mentioned before, there are some other malaria medications that are out there. Uh, Tafiniquin is one of the newer ones as well. I have not seen its use um, for, for malaria prophylaxis, but that's another option. So there are others, um, especially in other parts of the world that you may run across that aren't things that we would commonly give uh, here in the United States. Motion sickness. I think we all know, I have a general understanding of what motion sickness is. Uh, when we look at the treatments of choice, we're using anticholinergics or antihistamines. When I see that word, automatically I think drowsy, right? So that's one of the problems with these, is these medications can cause patients to be very sleepy and just quite drowsy and just kind of feel out of it. Uh, your scopolamine patch is probably the recommended option for adults. Um, and you alternate behind your ears. That's if you are going to be in that constant environment where you're constantly going to be exposed to motion sickness. Um, the big thing with this patch is you need to put it on, not as you're getting in the car to go through the curvy road in the mountains, but you need to plan ahead a little bit. And ideally, it's put on at least four hours and even more ideally closer to 12 hours before you actually travel. Uh, that's when it's going to work the best. Once you're out of the environments um, and, and not going to go back into the environment for uh, the, the potential motion sickness, then you can take that patch off of your ear go on with life. Uh, diamond hydronates, this is another common one uh, that we can pick up over the counter here in the United States or in most of the world. And this one's a little bit nicer in that it's, you don't have to, you know, take it four hours before you go. You can take it much closer to the time that you're leaving to travel. And drowsiness, because it's not a topical application, um, the drowsiness is only going to last for, you know, four to six hours. Uh, so every four to six hours, you need to re-up the dose on this one if you're still in that environment. But that's kind of nice because it will wear off uh, pretty quickly, too. Whereas the patch, even after you've taken that patch off, um, while no more drug is getting into your body, there's already some that's in your skin tissue, in your muscle tissue, um, in the fat uh, areas. Uh, so it's going to still be kind of a little bit more present for a little bit longer. Another one here in the United States, meclizine, that is, again, commonly used over-the-counter medication, similar sorts of things. Even diphenhydamine, regular old Benadryl. For motion sickness. Um, some of the potential problems are patients who should not get uh, anticholinergic medication are, are listed here. Um, so men with BPH, this can make that worse, or women who have urinary retention of any uh, of any cause, it can make that worse. That's probably the biggest complaint sort of a thing, but there's other ones that are listed here. Uh, I usually think of the other ones as being, you know, more of a long-term effect, not from just taking a dose or two. Uh, but the urinary retention, uh, you can definitely experience even after just a dose or two. Common adverse reactions, again, dry mouth, uh, drowsiness, blurred vision, thick respiratory secretions. 
um, in that. So pregnancy lactation, probably safe. Pediatrics, while we, they're not officially FDA approved, we generally know that these medications are safe and widely used throughout the world. As long as they're using an appropriate dose for that child. Cholera. Again, if you're going to an area of the world where there is not cholera endemic, you don't need to worry about this. If you're going to an area of the world where there is a lot of cholera, then definitely uh, this is something that you probably need to be prepared for a little bit. Um, so again, very severe watery dry diarrhea, um, as well as nausea and vomiting. Uh, avoiding, like we talked about with traveler's diarrhea, avoiding the foods and drinks can help prevent it. And with this one, we actually have a vaccine uh, so we have a single-dose oral cholera vaccine. It's been around for a few years now. Uh, I have not personally used it myself. I've not been to a cholera endemic area um, since this has become available. Um, but it's a, a fairly short-term sort of thing. So it's 90% effective at 10 days, which is great. It's pretty quickly after you've taken that dose, um, it's there. But then the immunity starts to wane, where it's down to 80% at three months. Uh, we're not still sh we're still not sure how long that protection lasts. You know, if you got a cholera vaccine last year, should you get another one this year? That evidence or that data is still not really well known. Um, we do know there is at least protection to at least three to six months. Uh, how far beyond that, what percentage it is, is still being determined. Treatment fluids is definitely the way to go. Um, antibiotics. Most patients who have otherwise normal um, health or good health, they usually don't need any antibiotics, um, but there are those that are available um, to do that. Zika, I haven't heard much about Zika in the last couple of years, but I put this slide in just because it was in the news, you know, uh, not all that long ago. Um, and so looking at this, most patients have very few symptoms, and if so, it's, it's very much a flu-like. Uh, so very non-specific treatment or very non-specific symptoms as far as treatment. There's really no specific treatment. There's no real commercially point in time either. Travel recommendations: If you're pregnant, be careful. Um, if you're planning to get pregnant as well, uh, be careful. Uh, I don't know how much more I should really delve into Zika. So here's just a little case to talk about um, some of the concepts, at least especially with malaria um to, to talk about a little bit so 29 year old female um this is uh, she has a prescription for 10 tablets of chloroquine 500 and she's a chaperone who's going on an upcoming missions trip for her church's high school and college age youth group um so she, she's kind of just coming in in this case to the pharmacy so this is certainly geared toward pharmacists but you all can, can think this through and, and she's kind of wondering if there's anything else we want to know. Um, I will tell you absolutely this is the right dose for this. Um, I didn't try to trick anything with that, um, but certainly that's the right dose. So what questions should we should you ask her? Um, I, I imagine most of you are starting to think, you know, well, is she pregnant um, or any chance of being pregnant? Uh, because that will definitely impact what she's doing now fortunately chloroquine is a, a potential a potential option for her but you know if she's traveling to an area where there's zika should she even be going uh from that perspective um and so that leads us to where are you going so not just pregnant but where are you going um so again depending where she's going chloroquine may not be appropriate and so so there's that and not just where but for how long right um, so her prescription was for 10 tablets. Is that appropriate? It's probably enough. If she starts taking it one to two weeks before, and for four weeks after she gets back, right, there's six doses that she's taking it two weeks before. Um, and if she's going to be gone for four weeks, then there's the full 10. If she's only going to be gone for a week, then she doesn't need all of that. So or she doesn't need that many tablets. So I've kind of delved into a little bit of, is this prescription appropriate? Again, the, the dose is right. Um, but then it comes down to really figuring out, is it the right drug for her? So where is she going? If she's going to Mexico, then sure, it's, it's going to be good. Um, if she's going to be gone for four weeks, then 10 tablets is the right amount. If she's just going to be gone for a week, then she certainly doesn't need the full 10 tablets. Um, and she would only need um, six or seven tablets to get her through that realm. Is there anything else you'd recommend that she take? And here, um, I'm not asking, you know, as a chaperone for the other kids, I'm thinking about from her perspective. And so, 
you know, some of that goes into play with what is she going to be doing? What, you know, what sort of patients is she going to be coming in contact with? Um, is there an incidence of cholera where she's going that we might want to think about the cholera vaccine? Is she going to a yellow fever endemic area where we need to think about yellow fever or typhoid? Um, is she up to date on all of her vaccines in general? So uh, all those come into play. Um, other medications, should she take something for motion sickness, uh, you know, just in case? Should she have something with her for that uh, potential outcome? Should she take something prophylactically, even just something as simple as Pepto-Bismol for traveler's diarrhea? Um, and again, most patients, again, for traveler's diarrhea, they don't really need that. But again, it's it's a potential nice option for some patients who don't want to have to worry about that. So, you know, th there's kind of a limitless sort of thing about what she could take with her, you know. Some people might recommend she take Gatorade powder with her just in case she gets traveler's diarrhea so she's able to get those electrolytes. So, um, so you know, there's a lot of things that she needs to start thinking about, and hopefully her trip isn't leaving tomorrow because they, there's definitely a lot of other things that that is going um, into that. I always, you know, these sorts of patients as well, I always, you know, refer them back to who is organizing that trip. Most of the time, these aren't being organized by somebody who's never been there before. So, so ask them, what do they recommend? What do they take? What have they seen other um, people who've gone on this trip before? Potentially, what have they gotten sick with, etc. Um, so I, I think there's a, a good amount of conversation that can happen there in that environment, whether it's in a pharmacy or whether it is in a physician's office or other prescriber's office, or it's just in your own mind. Um, you're going on one of these trips and you're not a healthcare provider. Things to think about is, is really, there's a bunch of them. References, there's uh, some references that are listed here uh, for sure. Um, I'm not quite sure how this question, the answer part is going to work with the recording, but uh, I'm certainly more than willing to take any questions you may have, and you may certainly email them to me as well. Um, and my email address, I can't write, I apologize, um, is simply my last name, uh, M-O-S-L-E-R at Finley, F-I-N-D-L-A-Y dot E-D-U. And, and I'll do my best to reply to any questions that you may have that way in a timely manner. So thank you for paying attention. Thank you for your time today. And I hope that you, hope that you have a, a good time on some of your potential future trips.